Have you ever had one of those moments where you just look back and it's like, God, I see what you're doing there. Um, one of those moments where there's no other interpretation rather than God ordained that. Um, it's just like, ah, that's not something I can ignore. This may surprise some of you, but the shepherds meet and we actually plan. <laughs> um, but when, when we plan things, like we, we look at, like for example, like we're going through John, right? So we'll look at the scripture ahead and kind of be like, wow, I think we'll do this passage on this Sunday and kind of just think that through a little bit. Um, the other thing we plan out and have kind of on a schedule is what you see to the left and right of the stage here in front of you that we'll be doing later. And that's partaking in the Lord's Supper. Um, through just a few changes in schedule, it just so happened that Lord's Supper Day fell on Bread of Life Day in John 6. And with that in mind, that's not something we can just blow over. So just for a moment, um, excuse the dramatic lighting and the trying to draw some kind of emotional response out of you. That, that's not really what's going on. Instead, I want you to recognize the focus. Because for the first 1,500 years, this was central. This was the reason the church gathered. In fact, this was it. A lot of churches, this is all they had. And they were excited about it. They didn't gather to hear some amazing speaker give a 45-minute sermon that you're going to forget in three hours. They didn't gather to hear the next awesome, sick worship leader, I don't care how beautiful his hair is, get up and sing. Like, that's not the reason. They gathered because Jesus was center. And that was the first 1,500 years. Now, this isn't a church history lesson, um, but you know, 500 years ago or so, uh, there was a split in Lutheran church. And, and what ended up happening from that, there were some positive sides to it as well, but what ended up happening is this was moved. And it was no longer placed front and center stage, but yet set off to the side. And you know what replaced it? A pulpit. All of a sudden, man became center. Okay, there were some positive things that happened, but I, I think there's something to recognize there. That for the first 1,500 years, this is the only reason the church gathered. Or at least the main draw. You know, and, and, and Paul... Paul taught this, and it, it's the same scripture that we use e even today to kind of teach through the Lord's Supper right before we take it and everything. But there, there's another section that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, and I, I want to read this real quick. It's 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17, and it says, The cup of the blessing that we bless is not a 
is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And there's some very intimate language in this verse that we're not going to break down or anything like that. Um, but, but it's very intimate uh, to the point that I think even Paul is struggling to, to completely unpack what's happening. And, and again, kind of going back to church history a little bit, you know, eventually the church um, found a way to kind of define this and put this in a box and say, this is this and this is when this happens and everything like that. But in, in the early part, when Paul was still trying to unpack this for the first Corinthian, for, sorry, for the Corinthian church, even he was struggling to say, I don't know. It's some kind of participation with the body. And just, I'm struggling to put it into words. This is Paul. So who are we to finally say, yeah, this is what it is. But the point is, that there's something special that happens when we come together as a church and partake in the body and the blood. And it should be something special that happens when we partake in the body and the blood. So as we go through the rest of the message here and, and talk a little bit more about John 6 and the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus being the bread of life. We're, we're going to leave this right here. We're going to leave this right here, front and center, as a reminder of what we're talking about. We will go ahead and bring up the lights, though. But I just thought that we needed to overemphasize because we, we can't miss the opportunity to talk about the Lord's Supper and Jesus talking about the bread of life and the connections with Passover and everything like that. So it's like, this has got to be front and center as we do. Jesus has got to be front and center while we're talking about this. Or else it's just another wooden pulpit. So I'm going to step off to the side. And we're going to open our Bibles to John 6. And as you've already, as we are, as we have already read, we know that this is one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever performed. Feeding of the 5,000. It's actually the only miracle found in all four Gospels. But John is the only one that inserts Jesus' teaching at the end, where he calls himself the bread of life. And, and as we know, uh, in uh, actually John 20, I went ahead and made the note here. Uh, it says, Jesus had many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Not all of them were actually put into the book. Okay? Which means John was selective what he put in and where he put it. So John put feeding of the 5,000 and bread of life right next to each other, right? Well, except for the little miracle of walking on the water. But they put them right next to each other. So that's what we're going to do. This. We're going to teach it as such. 
okay? That they're connected and it's one thing, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's, let's kind of set the scene a little bit. Let's establish it. Let's say, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're going to reread this. If um, you don't have a Bible, just as a reminder, we do still have the black Bibles on the seat rack in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those and follow along, okay? Because we're going to kind of unpack and, and walk through the story, okay? Verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay, we're going to go ahead and stop there. And so we're setting the scene, and we understand that there is a crowd following Jesus. And a lot of times, I think when we uh, hear the word following, we automatically assume that they are followers of Jesus, or um, they are his disciples, they, however you want to look at that, right? But he kind of unpacks here exactly why they're following. They're not following because they believe he is the son of God. They're not following for any, they're following because of the signs, right? They're following because they're curious. They see something happening. They, they, they see, you know, people getting healed and everything, and they want to, they want to be a part of that. They're not really sure what's happening, right? So if we were to maybe uh, pair this with more of like a, a modern day type of idea, it's like they're, they're kind of like an open skeptic, right? It's, it's like you may see something happening at a church and everything like, oh man, yeah, there's just something different about those people. I don't know if I necessarily believe what they believe, but I'm willing to have conversation. I'm willing to see it and talk about it and everything like that, you know? Um, like, kind of like that kind of person is who we see following Jesus around, like I said, because they're more interested in the signs that he's doing. I guess it's a good start. But they're intrigued. And these would be the same kind of people that would probably follow many type, different types of rogue teachers. Um, later on in the New Testament, we, uh, there's a teaching about like Greeks, right? They have itchy ears. They'll like to hear all these different things. And oh, what's, what's your new philosophy? I think as uh, they tell Paul one time, what, what, what's your idea, you know? They're just intrigued. They're, they're interested about what's happening, but there's no real submission to Jesus' authority. Let's go ahead and keep reading verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Go ahead and stop there. I really, I really love the reactions of the disciples in this particular section. So we know, um, all, you know, all the disciples were probably there, but John specifically writes about these two. He specifically writes about Philip and Andrew, but you can only imagine what the reaction of all of them were, right? <laughs> when they're like, see all these people, and Jesus goes, so how do we feed them? And they're like, we don't. <laughs> We send them home, right? Uh, I love, like, so Philip, for example, like, he, he sees this, and he immediately goes practical with it, right? He immediately goes like, um, yeah, we, we don't have enough money for this. 
There, there's no way. It's like, actually, just to put this in perspective, Jesus, we actually have so little money that even if the richest guy showed up, it would take his entire year's salary to feed all of these people. Like, we, we got nothing, right? And Philip goes, I mean, he, he's, ready for the, he's ready for the fundraiser. You know what I mean? Like, he's ready to say, this isn't going to work. We don't have enough money. Uh, let's, get, let's go ahead and start, you know, announcing it from the stage so we can start raising money to feed these 5,000, probably closer to 12,000 people, right? He, he's ready to go with the practical solution here. Uh, I don't know if anyone can relate with that. I know I can. I can definitely relate with that. I, I, I struggle with the whole, like, uh, okay, but how do we solve this? What's the next right step here to be able to, okay, let's, let's get the spreadsheet out, right, and type in the numbers, and if, if the numbers turn red, this just isn't going to work, people, right? I, I'm sure Jesus is like cool and all that, but he, there's no way he can fix this. I, I, I struggle to trust people. I can do this myself. I can figure out this problem. I find this, the solution's in me, Right? Too many normal people have let me down. I'll figure it out. Like I said, Philip goes immediately to like the practical, how do we fix this problem type of solution, right? And then we have Andrew who comes up. And there's actually a couple different interpretations of how Andrew reacts to Jesus in this particular thing. So the first one is, so Andrew comes up and it's actually more of like, like a cynical response. So it's like, hey, Jesus, it's like, yeah, sure, we're gonna feed her, but it's like, well, I guess we can use the fish and the bread from this boy's, like, sack lunch. Sure, we could use that, you know, right? And it's like this joke. It's like, that's not helpful, Andrew. Thanks, you know? Or, and the other way to kind of look at this is just for a brief moment, for a split second, he had the faith that Jesus could actually do it. He goes up, and Andrew's like, I don't know what to do. It's like, we got a kid over here. He's got, like, a Lunchable. I mean, could we do something with this? Uh, Never mind. There's no way this will work. He doesn't even get the sentence all the way out of his mouth, and he doubts what he's he's saying. Can anyone relate to Andrew? I mean, just for a brief moment, a brief moment, maybe your faith is so powerful, it's like, nah, Jesus is going to get this out of this, maybe. And it just dies. Or, yeah, man, it's just been a really rough couple of weeks of work. I mean, I'm probably going to like lose my job or get some kind of like crazy demotion and just, oh, man, just don't worry, Jesus is going to get me out of this, I hope. You don't even get the sentence out of your mouth and you immediately start to doubt. You immediately start to put Jesus in this demoted box saying, it's like, well, he can do it, but no, never mind. Which I think is probably a better interpretation of Andrew. And if I had to be honest, probably more relatable for most of us. And Andrew saw water turned to wine. He saw leopards get healed. He saw lame people walk, and he was still like, I don't know. Or maybe you relate to the crowd in this particular story. Maybe, maybe you're that person that just kind of orbits church, right? It's like, ah, oh, there's something interesting going on over there, but... I'm, I'm not involved in this, right? Like, I'm curious, but I'm not really involved. Or maybe you're just, like, morally conservative, so church, like, kind of makes sense, so you just kind of show up because it's where your friends are, right? But th- there's no real, like, authority or submission to Jesus necessarily. 
Like, you know, you show, like, I don't know, church, church is more like your golf game. It's something you do on the weekends, right? And then throughout the week, there's no real, like, prayer or Bible or communion with other believers. Where do you relate in the story? It doesn't matter, actually, where you relate in the story. Because what happens at the end? It doesn't matter if you are a very analytical person that thinks you can solve all the world's problems yourself, or if you only have a little bit of faith, but it's mostly doubt and questioning everything, or if you're just orbiting church and you're not really ready to commit or to submit to the authority of Jesus at all. It doesn't matter. Jesus fed them anyways. So be encouraged this morning that Jesus isn't waiting for you to get this right. He's here to show you the path to get it right, but it's only through him and it's only looking to him. Because Jesus is trying to point us to something here. He's trying to teach us something and it's not just to fill our bellies. So it doesn't matter which of the three of those people you are, like Jesus still multiplied the bread and the fish. So be encouraged in that. Let's keep going. Actually, before we move to the next, let's, let's talk about this. What, what does Jesus have them do right before we move to the next section here? What does he tell them? He tells everybody to sit down, right? Which is easy to just kind of blow over, but... I want to talk about this for a second because <laughs> I'm this person, right? So I don't know if you are, when you go to a family picnic or when we're done here, we go downstairs and start eating all of our baked potatoes, right? If you're the kind of person that goes through the line, right? You fill up your plate, okay? You got your plate and you look around like, ah, you go over there and you lean against the wall and you stand there and eat, right? I'm that person. I, I like to do that, especially during like family barbecues. Stuff like that. I'll go find a corner, right? It's like, there, I'm out of the way. I can just come over here. It's like, what's the problem with that though? What are you not doing? You're not talking. You're not participating in what's happening at the gathering, right? You're, you're, you're over there. I'm not taking up space, right? I'm observing what's happening, right? I'm still partaking, right? I get the food, right? I'm just here for the food, right? No, Jesus says, you will sit down and you're going to listen and participate in what's getting ready to happen. Right? That's what he's doing here. Okay, this isn't like, okay, people, get, get comfy. Okay, we're going to be here for a little bit. I don't want your feet to hurt. No, he's like, listen. I need you to listen. Something's about to happen. I need you to watch. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and we had given thanks, he distributed them to those who receded, implying that maybe there were some that were not, by the way. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Remember a few weeks ago we taught a little bit more about signs and how how signs don't actually prove the existence of God, right? So when they would see something like this happen, this doesn't say, oh, truly there is a God and he is good. That's not what they would have seen. They would have said, oh, truly God is with him, right? It doesn't prove the existence of God. It proves more of like a favor, okay, that God has favor with a certain person. So, and I like whenever Jesus does his signs, which is super ironic because it shows favor from God, even though he is God. But Jesus uses his signs to point us back to that point. To point us to that proof that I am. That's it. I am. And he uses his signs to do that. And in this particular instance, all the people see are the signs and not what Jesus is trying to teach or draw people to because of them, okay? And so the, the key to this particular passage in this section, sorry, was, was actually in verse 15. Did, did, did everyone catch that? What they were trying to do in verse 15. Let, let's reread that for a second, okay? Verse 15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. To make him king. It's what, obviously, in, in our interpretation, when we're reading this, you know, you know, 300 years, you know, whatever, like, like in our modern thinking, we're reading this like, what a ridiculous idea. <laughs> like, you're going to take Jesus, the son of God, and force him to do something. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous if you think of it. But in their particular mind, that, that's what they're going to do, right? They're going to say, it's like, you, you come and you, you rule over us. You, you take the seat of king. But here's the problem with this, because we would kind of get confused and say, like, well, isn't that why he's here? He was here to be king, to take over, right? To rule, to establish his kingdom. So what's the problem? Why is he leaving? Why is he running up the mountain? Or more, actually more of a hill, so just to put that in perspective. But he's running away from this. He's getting away, and he's supposed to be king. What's going on? It's like, well, the problem is, is like they were trying to make him king instead of realizing that he already was one. See, they had some man-made throne that they were going to put him on and say, okay, Jesus, continue to give us our free bread and our healthy and our wealthy stuff and get rid of Rome. Thanks, appreciate it, move on, that kind of thing. They had this man-made idea of who they wanted Jesus to be and sit on that particular throne. And Jesus says, no, I'm already a king. And you need to submit to the authority I have, not the authority you're trying to give me. Everyone remember back uh, a couple chapters ago, I guess it was one chapter ago, when he was talking about the witnesses? What does he say? He goes, I don't need a witness from man. I don't need man to say and tell me who I am. I need you to realize who I am.
See, there's key things in this that we just don't necessarily have time to, to unpack because we're talking about, well, let's go ahead and do that one, actually. So whenever we look at the 12 baskets, right? This isn't a key to the verse, but let's talk about it for a second. So there's so much bread left over, right, that it fills 12 baskets, okay? There's some tribes of Israel connections that you can make there. But here, here's the one that I want to make, all right? And Jesus, later on in here, he refers to the manna. Everyone remember the story of the manna that falls, right? It's a little, it's right after the Exodus, and God is providing food for the Israelite people in the form of bread that falls from heaven, right? It falls, it looks like dew, it's both sweet and savory, tastes like honey, right? Everyone remember manna, okay? So what was it about the manna? The manna would perish, right? You, you don't hoard the manna because he would give it to you the next day, right? But in this particular instance, in this particular version of bread from heaven, there's plenty. And Jesus doesn't say, just throw it away because I'm going to give you more later. No, what's he say? He goes, there's an overabundant amount to keep, and it lasts and lasts and lasts. This is not a bread that perishes. This is a bread of eternity, like, there's just so many connections that you're just trying to say, that was me. I'm the bread of life. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's not till later. <laughs> but there's just so many, like, just connections like that that Jesus is trying to make. And the only thing the people are worried about is making him king so he can overthrow Rome. And they're completely missing the true bread that he's given them. They're missing it. I pray this morning that I speak well enough to where we don't. And that we understand what this is. Let's keep going. We're actually going to skip down to verse 25. We're, going to, uh, we're not going to worry about walks on the water right now. Um, it's more of a, in, in this particular context, it's more of a transition type of uh, story. We may come back to it later. But it's literally just how we get from this miracle to the teaching. Okay? That's just the connection. So we're just going to skip it for now. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Do not chase after the bread that perishes. Jesus looked right into their attentions and realized that the only reason why they chased him down across the sea is because they wanted more of this free bread. Completely not recognizing where the bread was coming from. So right now we're going to start a uh, classic three-point sermon. Just getting started. No, just kidding. Uh, 
But we are going to do a three-point sermon now, okay? Classic, because I think it's, it's really fun. Uh, I, I want to unpack this idea of bread of life just a little bit more so we understand kind of what we're talking about. Uh, so if you're a note taker, I want you to go ahead and write down these three points. This is where we're going, okay? So we're going to talk about the bread of life is going to be point number one, okay? Point number two is the bread of life. And point number three is bread of life, <laughs> Uh, it'll, it'll make sense here in a moment. Uh, there we go. Good timing. So here we go. Bread of life. We have the bread, which is going to represent physical life. We got bread of life, which is relational life. And we got bread of life, which is going to be referencing eternal life. Okay? See, does it make sense now? All right? Okay. I figured this would be helpful or else you'd be looking at me like, what are you talking about? Uh, okay, bread, bread of life. Here's what we're going to be talking about. So the first bread that we're talking about, again, is physical life, okay? Um, or this idea of just existing, okay? Uh, like, for example, a tree uh, could be said to have life, right? Um, but you wouldn't say that it had um, a happy life, necessarily, or because it doesn't have any emotion, right? It, it just kind of exists. Uh, maybe some people, that, that's out of this entire sermon, maybe that's who you relate to, is the tree. You just exist. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but you understand what it's like. So it's more like just a life that exists, okay? Uh, nothing, nothing more, no, nothing less, everything. Um, but the, the idea here is that the bread in that particular context is there to manage your existence, okay? It's sustenance. That's it, okay? So, for example, like this is just a piece of bread, right? I could eat this, and I would not be hungry any longer because my belly would stop growling, Okay? It's food, right? That's the idea of this particular bread of life. So, but they would also use it as symbolism. Like if someone were to come up and hand you some money and say, oh, thank you, you have given me bread, right? It, the idea is that you have given me life because now I have something to eat. Um, even uh, for modern day people understand this. Billy Joel understood this, right? You put bread in his jar, well, how else is a piano man supposed to make money, right? The, the bread of life, that's what we're talking about, okay? Um, so the, the next bread of life that the Israel people would have understood when we're talking about this is the bread of life, and that's re relational. It's a relational life, okay? Um, we would look at this and the idea of breaking of bread. E even nowadays, if you were to invite someone to lunch, or over to your house for dinner. What you're saying is I want to be your friend, right? I want a relationship with you. I want something to do with you. I want to get to know you. And we would, we, even now we would understand what that invitation would mean, right? And we would say, it's like, oh, let's break bread together. Like we would understand what that means, right? A lot of times you would break bread as uh, like a truce or a mending as well. Um, and there's a story actually in Exodus 24 
And uh, well, actually, let, before we go there, let's talk about uh, in the tabernacle. At, remember when we were going through that and we were talking about all the things that are supposed to be in the tabernacle. And <clears throat> if you remember, it was very precise on what goes here and what goes there and what this needs to be made of and what size this was and how long it needed to be, right? And Moses had all of these different specs and stuff that he had to, you know, get it just right. And he didn't go through all that work just to turn to the Israelite people. It's like, here, it's done. You know, you guys should maybe check it out sometime. No, it, it was very, very intentional. Every aspect of it. Okay, and so there was something that was put inside the tabernacle, um, and maybe we kind of blew over this a little. I can't really remember if we taught on this or not, to be honest. Uh, but the, the bread of presence, right? I don't know if we talked about this at all, but the bread of presence was literally 12 loaves of freshly baked bread that would be put into the tabernacle. Okay, well, the, the origin of this, and there may be more than one, but this is one just kind of researching out that you kind of find, um, is found in Exodus 24. Okay, and this is uh, just shortly after, right? They've, they've left Egypt and everything. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11, wrote it down here. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw God. Now, I don't know if you know this much, but usually when people see God, they die. <laughs> That's just a general rule. If you see God with your eyes, you die. Okay? There was under his feet, this is them kind of describing what they saw. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. So they found it hard to maybe to kind of describe what they saw. But they understood that they were in the presence of God. They saw God and they lived. They did, he did not destroy them. So what did they do? They beheld God and they ate and they drank. God chose not to destroy and they celebrated. It was relational, right? It was relational. So when Jesus is calling himself the bread of life, in verse 35, let's read that real quick. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When Jesus calls himself the bread of life, the Israelites and the people around him, this crowd of people, they're just kind of like, oh, I'm just in it for the bread, right? I'm just in it for the food. They immediately hear this. They immediately hear that you are trying to sustain. That's the claim you're making. You're also trying to have a relationship. They understand the breaking of bread. Jesus is trying to say that I want a relationship with you. I've stepped down from my heavenly throne to be with you. break bread with you as a sign of peace. That's what Jesus is stepping into when he calls himself the bread of life. The 
final bread of life. Jesus refers to in 35, but he also says in 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus offers eternal life. Now, this is not just like we said with the first life when we were saying like just this existence, right? It's not, it's not just prolonged existence. That's not the life that Jesus is talking about here. In fact, actually there's two, two well actually there's three different words for life. We're just going to talk about two of them real quick. And uh, one of them is baos, which is the idea of just life, existence, right? That's that one. And then there's another one called zoe. And this, that's the idea of abundant life or a joyful life or everything you could ever want kind of life. So when Jesus says that he gives us eternal life in verse 27, it's zoe. It's a abundant life. Full of contentment. You will never hunger. You will never thirst. That's what Jesus is offering for those that simply believe. And see, we understand this idea sometimes that maybe our eternal life that Jesus grants us starts after we die, but it doesn't. It's, it doesn't start with death. It starts with belief. That's when eternal life starts. So we live in it now, that abundant life, that zoe. That's what we get to live in right now. And that's what he's calling us to live in. But we understand that the eternal life that Jesus gives us wasn't free. No, he paid a great price for us to have that eternal life. And that is this, right? That is what's represented here. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I will sustain you. I want a relationship with you. I give you eternal, abundant life. And I've paid the price by breaking my body and being slaughtered on a cross so you can have it. So you can have relationship with me, with God. Oh, and by the way, don't stand in the corner with each other. That's this. That's why the early church would get so excited about the idea of being able to come and do this together. Because we are one body, one bread, one Jesus. And he paid a great price on a cross, allowing his blood to spill to cover us. All connecting back. Again, the key point to all of this, John says it. This was the time of Passover. Quick, quick sidestep, just so you, we understand Passover, right? We all remember Passover. Right before the Israelites left Egypt, right? The spirit of death, the last plague was going to come and they were instructed to kill the lamb. Each family to kill a lamb and dip the blood of that lamb in hyssop. We'll get to that later. And hyssop, right? And wipe it on the door, right? And what does that do? The spirit of death would come, see the blood and pass over, right? Death would pass over them. The blood defeats death. And that's what this is. That's what we partake in. We remember his blood defeats death. And if it wasn't for the perfect lamb's blood, we would have death. 
And it's the perfect, he's the perfect lamb. It's not a lamb that's killed over and over and over and over. It's one time and he was enough. The final Passover. And he rewrote the rules. I want to read one of my favorite groups of scripture. It's in Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, <clears throat> for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice. Abundant, right? Abundant life in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word justified here, we have been justified. That means made right in the sight of God. That means he looks upon us. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see JR. He doesn't see Keith. He doesn't see Howard. He sees Jesus and he sees no sin in you. That's what justified means in this. There is no sin in you because of what Christ did and your belief in him. That's what this means. And then greatest news in the entire Bible is the next section. How does he do this? By his blood. There is no reference in your effort in this scripture at all. There is nothing you can do to save yourself except believe in Jesus and the power of his blood to pass over you. And that's what we believe this morning. That is why we partake in the Lord's Supper. It is not a teaching tool. It is not something that we just like take the shot in the morning so we can feel better. No, that's not it. We have to put it on a pedestal and recognize that this is some type of participation in the blood, participation in the body. Because we understand the price of being able to do this. And it doesn't matter if you're orbiting church. It doesn't matter if maybe you try to save yourself. It doesn't matter if your faith's that big. Jesus wants to invite you into this. He wants you to know that while you were still sinning, while you were still a sinner, he died for you. For your past, present, and future sins. They're all covered. You just have to believe. So now we're going to move into a time to respond with the Lord's Supper. I like reading this every time we do this because it talks about the original Passover. And it's in Psalm 51, verse 7. It says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And that's what this does. When the blood was dipped in hyssop and put over the mantle of the door, that's what's also happening 
to us, right? We're being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, passed over and made clean. That's what the blood represents to us. So the usher deacons want to come forward as we start this and Nathan's going to start us in response to this. Uh, do we have the slide that talks about the look inward, look backward, all those? I think it'd be good to have up. If not, it's okay. Thank you. Let's reference this and I want us to pray before we do this um, that our hearts can be ready to receive what we're about to partake in. So will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for your body that was broken for us. But Lord, we, we thank you for the opportunity to believe. Because our belief leads to the eternal life that you grant us. A life that is sustained by you in relationship with you and with one another. Lord, I want to pray that a fire is lit within us to have a passion for what we're about to partake in, a reverence. Lord, I just ask that your spirit be here and speak into all of us and teach us who you are. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the life you've given us. And it is in your name we pray.